Hello and welcome to the State of Play podcast. Usually at this point I say I'm joined by my co-host Matt Santangelo, but he's nowhere to be seen. However, we have a more than adequate replacement. Today I am joined by Jonathan Johnson, aka John Legosip. John, how are you doing, mate? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for coming on. Why don't you tell the listeners a bit more about yourself, a bit about your background and what you do? Okay, so I'm basically a British... A uh, football journalist who lives and works in Paris. Um, I cover Paris Saint-Germain and the French national team for uh, ESPN FC, and I occasionally do other bits of freelance work uh, in, in a bunch of other places. Um, but people will mainly find me talking about PSG and French football quite often on Twitter. Nice. We've had someone similar on the show before, uh, Mohamed Ali, who who is you know UK from the UK originally, but covered French football. So, what made you kind of fall in love with the, the French football, uh, French football in itself, and Liga? Uh, living here, uh, this is my second time living in France, second time living in Paris, and the first time I was out here, uh, I was still at school just before I went to university, um, and I bought myself a PSG season ticket. Obviously, this was years before PSG were taken over uh, by the Qataris, who are now in charge of things at Parc des Princes these days. Um, and, you know, PSG were a... Uh, it reminded me a bit of, of, of my actual childhood team, Aston Villa, really. Um, a, a, a big club that had fallen on hard times, a bit of a sleeping giant. Uh, drama was never you know, never too far around the corner. Um, but, you know, there was something that was that, that was really appealing uh, to me about them. I mean, I, all the teams that I really like and keep an eye on in European football uh, kind of are in the in the same vein. Uh, OK, not so much PSG now, but before the Qataris took over, uh, Villa, Parma in Italy and uh, and Cologne in Germany. Uh, you know, so I think I think there's a, a fairly a fairly common theme in uh, tying all of those teams together. And yeah, it's you know, fr- French football fascinated me from the moment that I arrived in the country. Uh, not only PSG, but a lot of the other clubs as well. Um, you know, I first started following uh, Ligue 1 at the time when Lyon were. Uh, absolutely dominant uh, and then sort of saw uh, an increase in in competitivity after that uh, and then obviously PSG's uh, reign started well coincided with me returning to France I came back in 2011 uh, the Qataris arrived at that time and uh, you know PSG have been dominant in France ever since really uh, but you know the thing that I, I've always loved about French football is that it's a of a very high quality uh, you know okay you know, French teams generally don't tend to keep hold of their biggest stars. Their biggest stars tend to go overseas to to other leagues, notably the Premier League. But you know, the French football, the, a lot of the clubs here are constantly pumping out excellent, talented players. And you know, that for me was one of the the, the things that I really loved and, and still really love about uh, about French football. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it's good that you are here to talk a lot about uh, Liga French football and. Paris Saint-Germain slightly in particular because the conveyor belt of of French youth talent at the moment it seems to be going into hyperdrive I mean historically France has produced numerous numerous high quality players but it seems as though now more than ever there's just an unlimited amount of French talent out there what is going on in terms of the infrastructure of French football that is helping these teams produce so many top talents yeah, I agree. And I think that the French football now is benefiting from how well the clubs, a lot of clubs, academies are run. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, the traditional big teams in France, all of them have very, very good uh, youth academies. OK, some are more productive than others, uh, but, you know, these clubs have excellent facilities. Uh, they're well equipped. They've got, uh, you know, very good staff uh, and it gives youngsters Growing up in different parts of France, very complete uh, educations, not only in terms of football, uh, you know, but away from the pitch as well. And I think that's, you know, that's that's something really, really important, and it's something that the French take very seriously. Obviously, you have the centre of excellence in uh, of Clairefontaine as well. But, you know, I think that, you know, the French get it right when it comes to not only uh, educating the players, raising them, but also giving them opportunities to establish themselves. And obviously, uh, you know, the sort of conveyor belt um, uh, existence of, of, of French football means that a lot of 
the very best products that come through the youth academy are not going to stick around for too long. So you you have to know who the next one in line is going to be. Uh, you know, while the other ones uh, are, are still sort of finding their feet on the pitch. Mm-hmm, certainly. So, well, that's a little bit about the background of, of kind of why they're producing so many good talents but as we know PSG uh, stopped that kind of self-sustaining model as you mentioned the Qatari group came in and and spent a lot of money and now there's a lot of rumors about FFP Patrick Stoll from Twitter had this question with another rumor that Neymar is possibly out the door from PSG to either Barca or even Madrid does Neymar actually stay long term does Mbappe stay can Paris Saint-Germain afford to keep both and stay in line for financial fair play uh you know what it doesn't really matter what i say um you know the it's not going to stop the rumors because i think people just like to read about neymar uh you know potentially leaving psg or mbappe leaving psg uh you know the the truth doesn't seem to matter to a lot of people uh, at this moment in time it's very difficult to say exactly what psg have to do to stay in line for financial fair play you know what financial fair play is actually dictating for psg uh, at, the, at this moment in time psg are waiting uh, on a return from the Court of Arbitration for Sport regarding uh, the way that UEFA have dragged things out with financial fair play, which is a big bone of contention. Uh, PSG feel that they should have known uh, a long time ago exactly where they stand with financial fair play, but don't um, because of a, a variety of, of, of reasons. But one of them is that UEFA keep delaying their decision, their verdict on, on telling PSG exactly, you know, what it is they might still need to do to remain within financial fair play or whether they've done enough already. Uh, you know, and I think when you look back at the, the the timeline of events of PSG with financial fair play over the last couple of years, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, UEFA have lost sight of exactly what they want PSG to, to prove. Uh, you know, it, it seems like PSG satisfied what UEFA wanted um, last summer and then decided a couple of weeks later that they didn't. Um, you have the likes of La Liga's Javier Tebas admitting that he's putting a lot of pressure on UEFA to punish PSG uh, for financial fair play. So it seems at this moment in time that UEFA almost having financial fair play dictated to them as opposed to dictating it to clubs like PSG. So it's, you know, it's very difficult to say exactly, uh, you know, what the long-term future for the likes of Neymar and Kylian Mbappe are, uh, you know, when, when financial fair play remains unclear. However, I think that if, Court of Arbitration for Sport rule that UEFA uh, have dragged their heels about financial fair play. I think that's going to be a massive uh, kick in the teeth for UEFA. Uh, and I think it'll be a massive boost for PSG in their long-term goal of being uh, free of financial fair play. I mean, I think people generally tend to look at financial fair play and have an overly simplistic view of things and think that it's simply uh, you know, um, not spending more than you earn. But people think that the only way that clubs can earn money is by selling players, which is not really true these days. And PSG are better than most when it comes to maximizing their potential income, uh, you know, through different commercial streams, whether it's setting setting up the stadium, selling lots of shirts, uh, you know, various sponsorship deals. Those sponsorship deals and the nature of some of them are being looked into at the moment. I was going to mention that there are lots of loopholes we've heard recently over in the UK, uh, Manchester City uh, paying coaches through sponsors, uh, loads of rumours in that kind of uh, sense. So even if the even if it is enforced to a stronger degree is there a chance that there are still too many loopholes in general john i mean, personally i think that financial fair play is something that works in theory but doesn't work in reality uh it's very flawed uh the reality of, of financial fair play it's something that could work if there were modifications made to it however i think if modifications are made to it uh, you know, clubs like PSG, you know, will be within uh, financial fair players' limits in the future because at the end of the day, PSG did get punished uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, they got hit pretty hard, so did Manchester City. Uh, and since then, PSG worked out exactly what they needed to do. Uh, you know, looked at looked at the loopholes within financial fair play, if you like, worked out exactly how they could jump through them, and they've done just that. Uh, you know, and people seem to be angry that that, that PSG have have, have done that. I I can't comment so much on on somebody like Manchester City because I haven't looked at 
at, you know their financial fair play situation in half as much detail as I've as I've looked at and covered PSGs over the last couple of years. You know, but PSG have have done everything uh, by the book and, and made sure that they've done everything by the book uh, since they were first punished by financial fair play, and they're now. You know, rightly questioning why UEFA seems to keep changing the goalposts. Uh, you know, so you know, I think the the real, you know, the the real question, the real issues uh, with financial fair play actually lie with UEFA because I think that they thought a couple of years ago, after making a couple of amendments, that that would be it, that financial fair play could stay as it was. Uh, and actually, in reality, some clubs have looked at uh, at it found loopholes in it and have started to jump through it uh, and now UEFA is under massive pressure uh, you know from you know from wider European football but also from the you know the traditional established superpowers of European of European football uh, you know to, to punish these clubs who are you know sort of getting to uh, the same sort of level of economic strength that you know the likes of Real Madrid the likes of Bayern Munich the likes of Juventus uh, you know have have managed to reach after years of sustained success certainly i think that there's there's that point isn't there about regulation and how it has to continue to iterate and move because if you don't there are some very clever lawyers out there that can find those loopholes that you just uh, mentioned but before we move on yeah, before we move but, i mean on, if, well yeah before we do move on i mean going back to to neymar and Bappe, a lot of the stories that come out about these two players and about psg uh particularly when they come from Spain. A lot of people talk about things like minimum fee release clauses in players' contracts, and it it frustrates me every time I read them that journalists can't even do very basic research to work out, uh, despite the number of times it's pointed out to them, that these clauses don't exist in French football players' contracts. Neymar doesn't have a minimum fee release clause in his contract. Kylian Mbappe doesn't have a minimum fee release clause in his contract. The closest the player can have to an agreed price to leave a club is a gentleman's agreement with the club's owner. Uh, and PSG are not a club. The PSG's Qatari owners are not owners who uh, buy players and think about selling them on in future. PSG have lost very few star players uh, over the years since the Qataris arrived because they, you know, they don't they don't buy them uh, in order to think about potentially using them uh, as bait to bring in other players in the future. They they buy them uh, and they they use them not only on the pitch, uh, you know, but also off it to Im- to improve the club's image. So you know, PSG unless they're forced by financial fair play, and I think that they would take UEFA to court over that before they're forced to part with players like Neymar and Mbappe. You know, I think that. It, you know, that's the only way that we'd see PSG part with them in the next couple of years. You know, I don't think anyone's kidding themselves that the Neymar and Bappe will finish their careers with PSG. But I think PSG definitely expect a good couple more years from both players. Uh, you know, I, I I think being completely realistic, you know, looking at the two players' ages, um, you know, and, and their backgrounds, their characters as well, I think people will expect, uh, people at the club expect Bappe to stay around for longer than Neymar, but that doesn't mean that they're sort of counting the days until Neymar leaves. Uh, at this moment in time, it's interesting to see just how invested Neymar looks compared to last season, uh, how much happier he seems on the pitch. Um, uh, you know, And I think that PSG's appointment of Thomas Tuchel has shown him that they are serious about improving, making a, uh, a better fist of, of challenging for the Champions League. And they showed that with the character that they developed through a difficult group stage in the Champions League this season. Uh, you know, and I think that at this moment in time, uh, both Neymar and Mbappe have a lot going for them uh, at PSG, uh, and it's you know former star names. I mean, okay, he's still a he's still a big star name at PSG now, uh, you know, but he's sort of seen as one of the the kind of lesser lights because of what Neymar and Mbappe are doing at the moment. Uh, I'm talking about Edinson Cavani. It's you know, it's that kind of player who we've got to be looking at ahead of this summer and perhaps wondering if, you know, we might be seeing the last couple of months of him playing uh, for PSG because, uh, you know, with PSG's ambitious plans coming up for the for, for this summer's transfer window with the likes of Frenkie Diong, Matthias De Ligt, uh, you know, PSG are going to have to make space for some of those players to, to arrive and given their desperate need for, for, for midfielders, uh, you know, I, and I, I think that we will eventually see uh, you know, PSG's star names move away from being Neymar, Bappe and, and Cavani, uh, you know, to, to being 
Neymar Bappe and and somebody else, you know, perhaps uh, perhaps a De Jong, and obviously you've got the likes of Verratti already at the club as well. So I, you know, I think that there's a lot that could potentially change with PSG uh, over the next couple of months. But unless they're forced to, and I think that will become a very messy process. Uh, some of those changes will not involve Neymar and Bappe. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I think the happiness point that you raise is really important because player power is so strong these days. And obviously Neymar being the probably the second most marketable or top most marketable player in the world, he has a lot of power these days. And and whether that's on the pitch, off the pitch, I think that if he demanded a move, it'd be, be tough for PSG just to sit on an asset that's kind of unhappy and not declining uh, in value, but just not really doing anything for them. So it, it, I think you do make a great point that it all just depends on how happy he is. But we had a few other questions here, John. One from Roberto Grosso. Uh, he, uh, he wants to know your thoughts on Edouard Mendy and how his performances, nine clean sheets, best in Liga, have helped Reims stay in contention for a Europa League spot? Uh, it's, it's a good question. I've been impressed by Ram this season. They're, you know, they, you look at their squad, they don't have too many star names, uh, you know, but they, they, they do form uh, a, a very good unit. And I, you know, I think that they are... When you look at Ligue 1 season after season, there are always clubs who you don't expect to be in the reckoning at the very beginning of the season, uh, but remain very solid over the course of the campaign. Uh, you know, and come the, the the very end of term, you know, they're in the reckoning for for, for these sorts of qualification positions. And yeah, you know, I think Haim are definitely in that uh, in, in in that conversation right now. Only six points uh, behind the top four, uh, like you know, as, as was pointed out. You know, with this with this question uh, on Monday, it's you know they they base a lot of their strength on a very tight defence. They're not a particularly attacking side. Uh, in fact, you look at the top half of the table; they've scored the least amount of goals, sixteen goals scored all season, but they've only conceded nineteen. Uh, you know, which is is almost unheard of uh, in the top flight, with the exception of PSG, Montpellier, and Nice. So, you know, I think I think Monty's doing a doing doing a great job for them at the moment, playing a very important role. He's someone who's definitely getting uh, a lot of attention for for, for his performances. Uh, you know, and I think the Rhin certainly ahead of the the second half of the campaign. You know, could be one of the the surprise packages to to keep an eye on in terms of uh, you know potential Europa League qualification. You know, I don't I don't think that they have enough in them to qualify for for the Champions League, especially when you look at how Lille are going, uh, how much better Lyon could be with a bit more consistency. Uh, you know, you'd expect Marseille. Uh, depending on what happens with Rudy Garcia to perhaps uh, you know uh, pick up over the second half of the season, especially now that they're able to concentrate um, for the most part on uh, on Ligue 1. Uh, you know, Nisa upwardly mobile all the time as well. So there, there is going to be tough uh, competition for qualification in Europe. But you know, I think Rhin are definitely uh, you know in a in a good position right now, and a lot of that is is thanks to to, to Mondi's, uh performances. I mean, nine clean sheets is certainly very impressive, and you, you said that's kind of raised a few eyebrows. Do you think there's interest from teams in Ligue 1 and and other otherwise in Europe? Definitely, and I mean, you know, I think that you, you've only got to look at some of the other players, some you know, similar players who've uh, you know sort of burst onto the scene uh, with with sort of lesser sides and then gone on to to, to to bigger and better things. I mean, you look at someone like uh, Benjamin uh, Lecomte at the moment, who's playing for Montpellier, formerly of Lorient. Uh, he's now being linked with moves to some of uh, you know some bigger sides in Europe because of what he's done domestically he's gained a bit of international recognition as well uh, you know and I think that Mondi is, is is somebody who could do you know something something similar along those lines I mean okay uh, you know Lecomte is, is is on his way to being 30 now but he's still got some good years left in him goalkeepers traditionally uh, you know tend to last longer than outfield players as well uh, and you know I think that Mondi has made a, a a very good and impressive start and he's in a very good place uh you know for his development right now with uh with Rhin. uh whether or not uh he benefit from making a move as early as this summer uh you know we'll have to wait and see but i think if Rhin remain in Ligue 1, uh you know i think uh, you know it, it would be a good thing for him to stay uh you know and, and perhaps uh you know uh, get a little bit more consistency next season with them uh before perhaps making uh making another move but but then again 
you know, any clubs in Ligue 1 who are looking for a reliable goalkeeper will, you know, will certainly look at somebody like Han and know that they can't reject, you know, offers, fairly substantial offers for, for any of their players. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a good position for him to be in at the moment because he's already at a good club uh, where he's developing, getting noticed. Uh, but it would also be quite easy for him to attract a bigger club in France, uh, certainly one that, that will be in continental competition. Uh, and then from there, perhaps, you know, start to, to move abroad in the future. But, you know, he's, he's, he's still, uh, you know, uh, a, a young player and it's, you know, 26 years old. It's not, you know, he's still younger than uh, than Lecomte, who I was mentioning a minute ago. So, you know, I think that I, I think that he's in a he's in a good place right now, uh, and you know, the next couple of months are going to be key for him, key for her, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens for them afterwards. But if he was to qualify for for continental competition with them, you know, I think that him staying another season uh, would would be probably the best thing for him want to certainly keep our eye on uh, both on the pitch and off the pitch if he uh, attracts a bit more interest next question is from uh, david c underscore lfc uh, is ishmael Assar attracting any interest and if so from who and he asked the same exact question about nicola pepe so why don't you talk to us a bit about those two wingers i mean Saar Saar is somebody who is very interesting he is uh you know he's, he's obviously a very talented player uh he was I mean, I'm, I'm i was not a big fan of sabri lamucci when he was coach of uh of Rennes, uh, but i felt that at times Saar was the you know the, the the star turn in that team uh and you know since since ren have uh, have gotten rid of lamucci and you've now got julien stefan uh in charge uh, you know i think that the well that and the fact that you've got hatton ben arthur uh, returning to, to to form of fitness, Clément Grenier uh, also, also doing similar. Uh, you know, I feel that there's less pressure on Ismail Assar now. Uh, you know, Saar has has done reasonably well um, so far this season. I definitely think that there's room for improvement. But at 20 years old, uh, you know, I I I also think that he's got time on his side. Uh, he's made a fast start to the season, got a couple of goals early on, went through a bit of a dry patch where nothing was happening. But like I said, it coincided with Lamucci being in charge. Uh, you know, the, their form wasn't the best. Uh, and I, they've really started to pick up since Stefan was was appointed. So for me, Saar is somebody who, you know, is definitely a work in progress. And there's obviously uh, a, a very talented player there. Uh, he's got all of the raw attributes. Uh, but I think that he is... Uh, less ready for a move um, either within Ligan or abroad than somebody like Nicolas Pepe. Uh, you know, he reminds me, uh, Sal reminds me a little bit of Pepe when he was at uh, Angers. Uh, Pepe at the moment leading Lille, uh, not on a title challenge, but uh, looking for potential qualification in the Champions League. Uh, and I think the, that Sar. It uh, doesn't necessarily have to make a move um, to to a similar club as, uh, as as Lille because at the end of the day, Rennes, you know, not a million miles away from being uh, of similar stature. Rennes also known uh, for their ability to develop players. So, you know, I think that at this moment in time, what Saar needs between now and the end of the season is a bit of consistency. And if he can get that together, improve his statistics, uh, you know, perhaps look to try and double um, what he did um, over the first half of the half of the season. You know, I think that he'll he'll, he'll you know he'll, he'll be in a much better position, obviously, and at the end of the season, um, and more clubs will be paying attention to him than somebody like Nicolas Pepe. But I I do think that it's too early for him uh, at this moment in time. You know, to perhaps be being linked with a move abroad. Uh, Pepe, you know, I can understand why the interest is there. Uh, he is a very good player, very talented. Uh, I think that he is custom made for for Premier League football. You know, he's got the pace, got the the the, the physicality. The one thing that I would say about Pepe um, is that a lot of people look at his statistics and think, "Oh, wow, you know the you know look at all the the, the goals that he's scored." But he does he has scored quite a few penalties this season. You know, he's got six to his name already, which is 
almost half of half of his total. Now I'm not I'm not trying to take too much away from him, uh, you know, but I do think that sometimes it creates uh, you know a more flattering impression of, of of what the player is up to than you know what they're actually doing. Uh, you know, I think the 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 thing to bear in mind with with Pepe more than anything uh, is the fact that he is part of a very vibrant uh, attacking unit at Lille. Uh, when, when you bear in mind that Lille were in an absolute mess when uh, Bielsa left uh, financially and in terms of the, the the state of the squad. Christophe Geltier has rebuilt really, really well uh, in a very short space of time. And I think the most impressive area that he's rebuilt in the in the in the squad is is in a, is in attack. You know, look at some of the some of the talented players that they boost there. Uh, Pepe, the standout player, but you know the the likes of uh, Jonathan Bamba uh, and uh, Ikone as well shouldn't be underestimated you've also then got Rafael Leao as well uh, and and people forget the the Lille also signed Loïc Remy and you know he's he's sort of become a bit of a, a bit part figure at the at this moment in time uh, but i think a lot of Pepe's success uh, owes to teammates like Bamba, like Ikone, uh, uh, you know, because they they've also played very important roles since the beginning of the season. Leao is now playing a bigger role since he's come in and since he's been able to play, uh, you know. And I think that the second half of the season will be will will be crucial for these guys. But Pepe, obviously, the you know the 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 one in that uh, in the, in that side and in that attacking unit that that people are looking at and understandably so. Uh, but I don't think that the importance of uh, some of his teammates should be uh, underestimated which I think you know does happen quite often when people are talking about Pepe at this moment in time yeah lots of very talented players we've seen Pepe and Leao actually create some form of little partnership and bromance on the pitch recently Uh, and if you guys want to hear a bit more about Nicolas Pepe head over to a two or three episodes ago where, as I mentioned earlier, Mohamed Ali came on and uh, spoke about Nicola Pepe for, for quite a great length of time and it was really good. But David had one more question here, John. What's the consensus on Nabil Fekir? Uh, Genesio has said he's struggling with an ankle knock, but his recent form has been off. Some suggestion he's unhappy and wants that out. Has Aulas made a decision on him? I mean, yeah, it's very difficult to uh, argue that Nabil Fekir's season hasn't been... Uh, completely crap because it has, you know, it's been very, very disappointing. Um, it's 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 hard it's hard to put the finger on exactly what is wrong there, uh, but I think it's a combination of things. I think a lot of the French players who were involved in the World Cup, understandably so, uh, are feeling a bit tired at this point of the season because, okay, they got some time off after the World Cup, but. You know, not as much as they would do in a normal summer. So this season has been very, very difficult for them in terms of uh, stamina. And when you play for a team like Lyon, where depth, uh, you know, doesn't really exist, or strength in depth doesn't doesn't really exist, someone like Nabil Fekir, uh, you know, is is relied upon week in, week out. Uh, and you know, I think that he's uh, okay. It's it's great that that Lyon have made it out of the the Champions League group stages. Uh, but for Lyon, without that strength in depth, uh, you know, it puts even greater pressure on someone like uh, Nabil Fekir. Uh, and I think that the combination of that, uh, you know, and his his head being turned uh, and the fact that, you know, the, he, he is sort of seen as one of the, the senior figures of this squad now. So he has to deal with the pressure that comes with that as well. Uh, you know, I think all of that has, has contributed to making him uh, you know, not not the happiest bunny at, the, at this moment in time. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about interest from the likes of Liverpool, uh, the likes of Chelsea over over the last couple of months. These clubs are interested in Fekir. Uh, you know, and they're, they're, you know the, the the move to Liverpool was uh, was close to happening last summer and, and didn't. And you know, I think since then, you know, perhaps Fekir has felt a bit. Uh, a bit frustrated, a bit disillusioned, um, and I think Leon are probably looking at it and wondering if they made the right decision to not uh, to not sell him, or whether they should have they should have cashed in on him and and not tried to get a little bit of extra money towards the end uh, of the negotiations. I you know I th- I think that um, Olas will always talk a good game when it comes to preserving 
his best players, particularly the ones who have come through the youth academy, so like like Fikir. Uh, but at the end of the day, no Lyon player is is not for sale. They're all available at the right price. Uh, Olas just has to name that price. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, based on everything that we've seen so far this season, uh, with the exceptional, uh, with the exception of a few moments of brilliance. Uh, you know, I don't think that Fekir is, uh, you know, his his bargaining position with, uh, you know, in terms with other clubs for someone like Fekir is as strong as it was uh, a few months ago. So unless Fekir has um, a very good second half of the season um, and helps Lyon do something, you know, perhaps in the in the Champions League if they're able to upset Barcelona, I, you know, I I think that we'll we'll definitely see Fekir move on this summer. I don't think he'll he'll be on the move in January. Um, but I think that he might go for a lower price than Leon expected unless things pick up over the second half of the campaign because it has been a disappointing uh, start to start to the term for him. Uh, I, I don't think that he's completely to blame for that, that drop-off in form, but I can understand the fans feeling irate. Um, Leon's form, as always, uh, not the most consistent um, and they're suffering because of that. Uh, but I, I think it would be harsh to to, to lay all of that blame at, at Fekir's door. But at the same time, you know, it's up to Fekir to to put all of everything that's happened behind him and concentrate on his football. And he seems to be having a hard time doing that at the moment. I totally agree. And I think that we see this quite often where a player is so heavily linked with a club during a summer or a, a long dragged out saga, they don't end up going in the end. And then the next season, they don't quite perform as well. Uh, and it's it's a strange one. I think a lot of people talked about Virgil van Dijk, where he obviously nearly went to Liverpool. And a lot of people, uh, Southampton fans, were talking about him being in and out the side, not performing as well as he could have. And sometimes it's in the back of a player's mind, even if it's subconscious. I don't want to get injured. I know what's on the horizon, etc., etc. But it's uh, it's interesting to see what happens. But it's interesting to see that you you think that he'll definitely go, and that seems to be kind of the signals that everyone's going. Uh, next, we've got um, a bit of a topic on Monaco here. Their fall from grace, Jonathan. What's happened, and what's the what's the outlook from a French perspective on Thierry Henry been so far? Um, Monaco are very, very interesting um, because of the nature of their project. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago when Dmitry Rybolovlev took over, he wanted to assemble a lavish project similar to that of PSG and quickly realised that Monaco weren't going to be able to bring in uh, the same sort of commercial revenue that PSG can because Monaco don't sell out their stadium week in, week out. Um, and they're not as attractive to sponsors as PSG are because so few people, uh, you know, you, you won't be able to be exposed to that many people when you're you, when you're at an average Monaco match. So Monaco had to rethink their project um, and they ended up deciding that it was better to buy in um talented players with a lot of potential for lower prices, add value to them over the course of a couple of years and then sell them on for for big money to Europe's elite clubs. And that worked very well for them for a while. Uh, However, it wasn't only the players who were playing well on the pitch who big European clubs took notice of. It was the guys in charge of the project as well. So we're talking about sporting director Luis Campos, who's now at Lille, um, and his uh, his successor as well, Antonio Cordon. Uh, and now Monaco end up with someone like Michael Emanalo, who was formerly of Chelsea. Um, Chelsea are known for identifying talented young players. They're not necessarily known for bringing them through. They <laughs> they tend to hoard them and loan and loan them <laughs> and out. He, and he wasn't very he wasn't very popular at Chelsea, was he? No, he wasn't. I mean I I can't claim to know too much about um, you know, sort of the finer details of Emanalo's time there. Um, but uh, what I can tell you is that since coming in, he's obviously looked. Uh, he's obviously relied on his contacts, uh, gone back to uh, to Chelsea, notably for the likes of uh, of, of Jonathan Panzo. Uh, but it, it it doesn't really work the the same way with Monaco as it did with Chelsea, because at Monaco, the sporting director has to absolutely know which players Monaco are going to buy at which time because they're primed to come straight in, be a part of the first team, uh, you know, and, and basically form a, a new core of players that quickly uh, gels, um, adds value, uh, and is then, uh, you know, and, and then gets moved on and, and you know, the process basically re- repeats. Uh, 
the it didn't happen with uh, with the most recent couple of transfer windows of of recruits. Uh, Leonardo Jardim paid a heavy price for being unable to gel what was arguably the weakest squad that he was given in his entire time at Monaco. And Thierry Henry has been brought in to to try to salvage things. Now, it's interesting now when you look at the the transfer dealings that they're doing at the moment, uh, that Monaco are once again... um, Falling back on Emanalo's Chelsea links, using yeah, using them to to bring in the likes of Cesc Fabregas, but are going for more experienced players, players who are going to be able to uh, hit the ground running uh, and and do enough to to keep Monaco uh, out of uh, out of a relegation dogfight, which they've been in for the for the most part of the season. Uh, it's it's a shame to have seen the project fall away the way that it has. But like I said, there's such emphasis on the the sporting director position. And if you don't have someone who is an absolute expert at being able to identify talent, but knowing at what stage of their development they're at, uh, it, it was it was always bound to, to to end in tears. It was a very, very fragile project. Uh, and, and Monaco are, I mean, it's, it's funny when we mentioned uh, financial fair play earlier, I said that a lot of people uh, are sort of seem to be under the illusion that clubs can only really um, spend money that they earn through selling players. And it's not, it's not true for almost every European club, it's, well, particularly the big ones, with the exception of Monaco, because Monaco brings so little in commercially that they can only really survive on what they earn from selling their players. So when you've not got any talented players to sell for big money, you're not going to have big money to spend. Uh, And that's the problem that Monaco have run into. Um, And their identification of talents who are ready to come in and and be part of the the senior squad has not been as good as it has been in recent years. Uh, And because of that, it's, it's created the mess that we see on the pitch at this moment in time. Things are looking a bit more, a bit more positive now. Uh, Thierry Henry was you know, given the hero's welcome that you'd expect from, uh, you know, a returning um, club legend, uh, you know, came through the came came through the the club's academy, so you know, is one of the you know one of Monaco's children, so to speak, uh, and. It, now that he's getting some of his players back, uh, you know, to, to full fitness, things are looking slightly rosier there. Uh, with the transfer window in full swing, uh, you know, Monaco strengthening, bringing in a couple of players, the likes of Fabregas, the likes of Vancouver. Uh, you know, I think that they're going to be much better over the second half of the season. I expect them to move pretty swiftly from uh, the bottom part of the table, sort of towards mid-table, and then maybe perhaps the, the top half of the table. I think uh, continental qualification is going to be a tough ask. Uh, but at this moment in time, the most important thing for Henri is just to get them uh, as far away from the bottom of the table as possible. Uh, in, in, ter- in terms of you know uh, keeping hold of some of the, the the talented players that they have in the long term, it, there's not too many talented players there to take really at this moment in time because a lot of the players that they've brought in uh, just just haven't performed. And you know I don't think there would be many clubs in Europe wanting to take a gamble on any of these guys at the moment. Uh, you know, I, th- I think when you when, when you look through their squad, there's not too many players, uh, you know, who's 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 going to who are going to get bigger European clubs excited. I mean, okay, once he's uh, playing matches regularly again, someone like Pietro Pellegrini because of his uh, because of his young age uh, will, might be an exception to the rule there. Uh, I think Falcao will interest clubs, but not. Of the European variety, I think we're talking more uh, a lucrative move to to China that could bring in a bit of money for Monaco there, perhaps. But you know, no one's going to be looking at someone like Stevan Jovetic, who's you know who's massively you know hit by injuries. Uh, and one one player I have to mention because he sums up Monaco's dreadful uh, recent transfer record is Alexander Golovin. Based based on a couple of good performances at the World Cup, he's been absolutely dreadful for Monaco, and he was, you know, he he cost a lot of money for them. Uh, Yuri Tielemans as well, somebody who I I've been a big big fan of for a number of years when, uh, since I used to cover um, Belgian football, and he was uh, coming through the ranks with with Anderlecht. He's not really had the impact that many hoped he would have, uh, you know. So unless these guys really dig in and perform over the second half of the the season, there's not going to be too many. Uh, members of this squad, with the exception of perhaps somebody like Ronnie Lopez, who I don't think would attract the same sort of caliber of uh, of transfer fears, someone like uh, Thomas Lemar, for example, 
and you know, so I don't, I don't really see where Monaco can make a lot of money in the in, in the next couple of months. So they're going to have to make the most of the talent they have uh, in the squad, um, do some intelligent transfer dealings, uh, which they're already doing this month. Uh, in order to get them through to the end of the season, and then I think they're going to have to do an overhaul next summer. Uh, and if 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 he's still in in charge of, uh, of of transfers, then you know I think Emanalo looking at the 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 loan ruling that's going to come in and affect Chelsea, uh, you know I think has to put himself at the front of the queue for a number of Chelsea's best uh, young talents uh, who won't be able to be kept on uh, at senior level, and you know perhaps try to add them to this Monaco squad at a, at a knockdown price. Cause that for me would be the sort of the, 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 the best route to take at this moment in time, unless Monaco can identify um, a stronger sporting director, who's going to be able to, uh, you know, reestablish the project that was in place a couple of years ago. But I think it's already been um, shattered so much that it would be very difficult to, to rekindle that sort of um, positive momentum now. And I think that they're going to have to look at a different way uh, of operating moving forward and I, I for me uh, if Emanalo stays in charge of, of transfer dealings you know looking at the players that Chelsea would have to get rid of is is an obvious starting point yeah damage limitations it seems but if Thierry can get them uh, going on the pitch then maybe some of those guys that you mentioned the like of um, Ronnie Lopez Golovin uh, and a few other of the young ones Pellegri uh, Samuel Granzier um, I know William Goebbels was uh, brought in over the summer, wasn't I mean, he? So Ge- we'll see how Ge- those Goebbels guys do. Goebbels himself is it's a very, very strange situation because he was brought in. Everyone was expecting him to play, um, you know, quite a significant role at senior level, and you know he was barely used. Uh, didn't even get registered for the Champions League squad, which was you know incredible, really, when you when you think about the the sort of lack of um, the lack of talent Monaco had, particularly before uh, this, this winter transfer window opened. So yeah, it's, you know, yet another question uh, over, over a very questionable um, transfer policy. I mean, I think that the, the judge is still out on Henri as a coach. Uh, he's shown, he's shown some promise at times, certainly with his, with his faith in, in younger players. But then again, He's putting so much faith in younger players because he doesn't really have anyone else available, it, you know. So it's 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 kind of by default. But uh, you know, I don't think people should judge him uh, too early. He did walk into a very very uh, risky risky situation when he was offered greater stability by the likes of by the likes of Villa and uh, and and by the likes of Bordeaux. Didn't take up those those challenges and ended up uh, taking on this one instead. And you know, the more and more players he gets back and the, the more form they, they pick up, you know, things are going to be looking better and better for him and he's going to be on more solid ground. So I think it's going to be a while still until we can really truly judge him. Uh, but, you know, he has shown signs of promise there. I'm still not convinced it's it's going to be a good fit long term, uh, but we'll see what happens between now and the end of the season. It's certainly a really interesting situation to look on, isn't it? But um, John, before you leave us, you're going to talk to us a little bit about um, Timothy Weyer for our player profile for today's episode. Uh, a guy who's just gone on loan from PSG to Celtic. Obviously, his father was a fantastic player. Why don't you tell us a bit more about what kind of player he is and how he'll do at Celtic, perhaps? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of of Timothy's. I think it's the right time for him to have made a move. He needed this loan move, uh, and I think PSG needed to see him in action somewhere else as well uh, in order to in order to really uh, make a decision over him uh, for the future. Uh, he is a versatile attacking player. He's he's very fast. Uh, he's got good physicality as well. Um, one thing that I would say about him, particularly after the he had he had a very good preseason. Um, and, a, and a, a decent start to the season as well. And then uh, he fell out of favour as soon as PSG managed to land uh, Eric Maxim Choupo-Moting. And I think that's because Thomas Thomas Tuchel knows exactly what he wants from his squad and, and the players in that squad. Uh, and there seemed to be a bit of uncertainty uh, on Weyer's part as to, to what was his best position, whether he was better playing through the middle in the attack uh, or on one of the sides, because he's capable of playing in in either of those uh, positions. You know, he can play on the well in any of those three positions. He can play on the right, he can play on the left, he can also play in the middle. I personally don't think that he has the the build to be a target man in the way that Tuchel needed 
uh, a second target man, someone to sort of take the, the the strain off of Edinson Cavani's shoulders. And that's why PSG moved uh, for Chupo Moting and, and in doing so pulled off arguably the most unexpected transfer of, <laughs> it of, really of was, last summer's it? window. Yeah, it was. It was bizarre. And it, it, it's a shame, really, that, that Weyer had to suffer because of that. Uh, a lot of people look at his performance um, when PSG won 3-1 away at Gangon, but were absolutely dreadful in the first half. He got hauled off at half time, And that was his last um, major action as a, as a senior player at PSG. Uh, and I, I think it would be harsh to say that he was judged on that. And it would be harsh of Tuchel if he, you know, if he really did um, judge Ware on that, but I don't think that he did. Uh, I believe having seen uh, Tuchel getting to grips with his players over pre-season uh, during the International Champions Cup and then the Trophée de Champions, uh, that he saw in Ware somebody who has a lot of talent um, and has attributes that he can use, but needs to refine them more and, and sort of needs to find himself more before he can be used uh, regularly um, as a senior player at, at PSG. And that wasn't going to happen at PSG because, you know, the pressure is on uh, each match to, to, to get a good result. And it's hard for somebody like Weyer to be competing with the likes of Neymar, with the likes of Kylian Mbappe, with the likes of Angel Di Maria, uh, you know, Cavani, uh, for a place in the in the starting eleven in and around those attacking positions. You know, you have the likes of Drexler floating around there as well and sometimes playing in midfield. Uh, you know, so it's not the easiest place for a talent like Weyer to be developing at this moment in time. And, you know, I think PSG looked at the way that Odson Edouard really flourished when he went to, to Celtic and eventually moved there permanently after a successful season on loan. Uh, and I think PSG are hoping that similar will happen with Weyer in that he'll succeed with Celtic and play very well there. Um, but that he will come back as a more rounded player because PSG still have the intention at this moment in time, uh, you know, of persevering with him and, and trying to establish him as a member of the of the senior squad at some point in the future. So let's talk. A- My person, sorry, yeah, I was going to say, let's talk a bit more about what he is as a player on the pitch. Um, because I think there's, uh, I think w- especially when a when a player has a, a, a dad that's as famous as his, there's a lot obviously a lot of like misconceptions about the type of player uh, Timothy Ware may be. So on the pitch, uh, pacey, uh, quite a lot of flair, very well skilled, an eye for goal. Uh, what? Who would you compare him to? What, what do you think his ceiling is, John? You know, I mean, I, I, I see similarities between him and uh, Jean-Kevin Augustin, who, who came through at PSG and then moved on to RB Leipzig in Germany. Um, it's he, He's not the same player that his dad was, but obviously both of them play in attack. And at the end of the day, both of them are looking to score goals at the end of it. Uh, I think that Timothy is somebody who is capable of being equally adept at scoring as providing Um uh, so, so for me, he is—he's—he's he's sort of—he would be a good player to have in a front three, not as the the sort of focal point of that attack in the middle, but on one of the the two sides, you know, to utilise his pace to be able to run at defenders, terrify them. You know, as you mentioned, he's a—he's a skillful player. He's a—he's a tricky customer to come up against. Uh, you know, he has good uh, vision as well. He has an, an eye for goal, but an, uh, but also an eye for a pass. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, if some of the goals that he was involved in during the International Champions Cup, I mean, okay, they're not the most competitive of matches, uh, but it, you know, it did show a lot of promise for him. And I think it was a shame that he was completely sort of cut out of the senior picture after that. But at the same time, I think going somewhere where um, there's going to be greater physicality and and he's going to be looked at as as you know sort of this this flashy signing by by Celtic. Uh, it's going to make him a target and it's going to ask him to to raise his game. And like I said, I think that he's cut out for that um, that sort of environment. I mean, you look as well at the the success that the likes of Dembele enjoyed uh, at Celtic over the last couple of years. Edouard now uh, you know sort of established as one of their uh, one of their main striking options. Uh, you know, and I think that where has the ability to be, you know, as good, if not better, as somebody like Dembele. I mean, it's strange that he's been granted a six-month loan, um, well, when you look at it on face value, but my understanding is that if the loan goes as hoped, it will be extended for next season. So he will be potentially staying with Celtic for 18 months as opposed to just six. Uh, and I think that with a bit of um, continuity like that um, and a bit and a bit of consistency, 
uh, you know, we will see um, Timothy Ware develop quite rapidly. Uh, you know, I think that he pe- people forget sometimes that he is still very, very young. Uh, you know, he's he's only going to turn 19 uh, towards the end of February. Uh, he, he hasn't been on the scene for too long, but he's somebody that's been talked about for quite a while now. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that him scoring so early on um, after making his debut uh, internationally at senior level um, has only heightened those expectations. And I think getting away to somewhere like Celtic at the moment, uh, you know, from the, the pressurised environment that is PSG, uh, having all of those um, hopes on his shoulders uh, because, you know, the American fans are looking for you know, the sort of the next big thing after Christian Pulisic and, and, and where, you know, is the closest thing that they have to that, well, had to that until the emergence of Sargent in uh, in the Bundesliga with Werder Bremen. Um, but, you know, he is still one of the, the, the brighter lights uh, of American soccer at this moment in time. Uh, and I think that he's making the right move at the right time because if he's going to be a success at PSG, and by a success, I mean establish himself at senior level, uh, you know, I think he needs to be more consistent. What I will add, though, and it's nothing against Ware because I, you know, I rate him as a, I rate him as a player, as a talent, and and he's a, he's a very nice guy off the pitch as well. I don't think long term his future is at PSG, um, but I think after a good spell on loan with Celtic, uh, with all due respect to Celtic, I think that he'll come back a better player. And if he doesn't um, get given a chance to establish himself with PSG. Uh, I think that there will be no shortage of suitors, and he'll end up making a move to a, a, a club in a in a stronger league than uh, than Celtic in uh, in Scotland. Uh, you know that period between eighteen and twenty two for for a player is so important, and sometimes if they do have a successful loan period, they almost don't want to go back to being on the bench or being a bit part player. They just they get addicted to playing and I think that's a good thing uh, but John I think we've had we've taken up more than enough of your time this evening more than I'd agreed to <laughs> um, where can people find out more about you I mean I think the best place for people to find me really is on Twitter so if they find me it's at j-o-n underscore legosib uh, you know they'll be able to find links to all of my work there uh, and you know I think that's the best place really to, to keep an eye on uh, on what I'm doing and what I'm saying about French football Brilliant thank you very much for coming on man and you can find me at Pet Berisha P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A and you can find the podcast at State of Play Pod uh, that's P-O-D and you can email us at stateofplaypod at gmail.com uh, Matt uh, apologises for not being on today but um, it might have been a better episode without him and if you did think so Give us a review. Give us five stars because Matt didn't join us today. Thank you very much, everyone.